I'm Lauren. I'm Tia. I'm Layla. I'm Natalie. And this is the Journey to Transformation. Welcome, everyone. Today, we are joined by the co-founders of We Are Feminist Leaders, Layla Billing, pronouns she, her, and Natalie Brooke, pronouns she, her. We Are Feminist Leaders supports individuals and organizations to embed feminist leadership principles into the way they lead and work. Layla and Natalie bonded over the frustration of some of the same tired leadership models. And if you've been listening to this podcast, you'll know that me and Tia share some of those frustrations. Welcome, Natalie and Layla. It's so great to have you. Let's start by telling us about yourselves and how all of this got started. Thank you. Thanks for having us. I guess maybe I can say from my perspective, I won't speak for Natalie, but I started my career in the humanitarian sector where there were lots of very hyper-masculine, very macho leadership styles, were very very dominant, a lack of humility about what could be done in partnership. It was all about, let's go in there, very gung-ho, lots of old boys networks in my experience. So that that didn't feel very inspiring. And I moved into working for more women's rights focused organisations. But the very disillusioning thing about those were a lot of those I felt worked in ways that were really producing and reproducing inequalities. And I felt that power relations and cultures of competition were just accepted and not really challenged. And there was loads of harmful stuff going on, not hiring people from where the development programming was taking place, a lack of support for women of colour in the organisation, problems around power hoarding, real unwillingness to share power. But at the same time, I was also meeting with other feminists and feminist organisations around the world that were doing really amazing work and showing really brave, courageous types of leadership. That There were organisations of feminists that were standing up to donors, they were speaking truth to power, they were working collectively rather than competing all the time. So I was always sure, I always knew another way was possible and there had to be another way. And I think that's part of what really brought me towards this focus on feminist leadership. And maybe Nat can pick things up from there, like where we met. Yeah, like Leila, earlier in my career, I also worked in international development, the humanitarian world for a short amount of time which was very dispiriting a lot of the time. And alongside my professional life, I had been volunteering at my local rape crisis centre, which I found hugely empowering and was really an opportunity for me to put my feminism into practice for the first time in a way that I felt really deeply connected to. And that then led to my career becoming focused on violence against women and girls issues, mainly in the UK, which I love to book. As it continued, I recognised some of the harmful power dynamics that were playing out in those organisations that had feminism at their very core, but were often replicating the harmful power dynamics they were seeking to eliminate in the lives of the women and girls they were supporting, which I found very confusing for a long time and really struggled with. And so Layla and I actually met when we were on a leadership course for women working in the women and girls sector globally and within the UK. And it was an amazing opportunity to meet some brilliant women who were doing work like us. But the content of the programme itself was disappointing in that it really lacked a kind of power, political feminist analysis and presented a range of very traditional male informed leadership models as the kind of answer to leadership within the social justice sector. And we were really disappointed that we didn't have an opportunity to apply our feminism to leadership in the way that we wanted to and where we thought there was a huge opportunity. And so 
as a result of that experience and through looking at what alternatives to these kind of development programs that we were really and others like us we knew were really desperate for we couldn't really find the alternatives that we wanted and so we after talking to lots of different people about what that gap was decided to build the thing that we wanted to go on ourselves and so we now run the program that we really actually just want to be participants on and we started that about two and a half years ago and I've been really fortunate to work with some amazing feminists from around the world since then. Nat mentioned that we started it two and a half years ago and it really gained momentum during Covid and I think there was a real sense of urgency that we both felt during COVID because it was so abundantly clear that leadership models were failing us. So if you think about for those people in the UK, we had the leadership of Boris Johnson, very hyper-masculine leadership style, a sense that the economy needed to come before health and well-being of the population. We had people like Bolsonaro in Brazil, coffins piling up in in the morgues, not enough space to bury people. And yet he was still going around saying, calling COVID just a little bit of the flu. So I think it was really COVID that galvanised us and made us feel like this is work we can't not do. Actually, it was a real moment, a kind of critical juncture where we thought, actually, now's the time to do it. If not now, then I don't know when. There's a couple of things you said there in terms of the disillusionment that I think me and Tia can relate to working for some of these organisations and coming out realising that the leadership model just isn't doing what we want it to do. And me and Tia work in evaluation research for a lot of these organisations and it often comes back to the leadership. Whatever the evaluation or research is about, it really does connect back to what is the leadership doing about it and the feminist aspect of it I think for us comes up a lot as this alternative model and I guess through talking to you we're curious about is that the only model or is that approach the one that people really know how to implement and or is it just this kind of yeah uh, terminology that people are adopting and not quite being able to know how to implement it so it sounds like people are really taking to your course and it's great to hear that over COVID that people just yeah were mobilized to join and understand what feminist leadership is really about. I feel like the narrative during COVID offered useful entry points for us because it helped people get engaged and want to find out more about a different style of leadership. And there were narratives going on in the press about people like Jacinda Ardern, some of the Scandi leaders are more compassionate and more, I don't know, caring form of leadership and perhaps that was the way forward but in a way that that was useful because it piqued people's interest but I think what Natalie and I try and do on the program is we always try and challenge this idea because I think there are still some misconceptions around what is feminist leadership and how is that different to this notion of feminine feminine leadership and we're always really careful to think very critically about that and to draw on the evidence base which says it's conflicting and what it says is that some countries that led their countries, some leaders who led their countries more successfully through COVID. Yes, some were led by women, but there's also examples of women who did a very poor job during COVID. And one example we always, we don't like to give it, but we give the example of the leader in Hong Kong, yeah, yeah who literally had to be forced to take action by civil disobedience and civil movements. She did a, a terrible job. So yeah, it's a bit of a double-edged sword because I think what we don't want to do is play into this narrative around let's essentialize this idea that feminist leadership means women lead like this, men lead like that, women are caring, men are uncaring. 
we want to break down all of those binary thoughts. And I think that misconception is still there. There's still work to be done on that. So when we talk about feminist leadership, we aren't talking about feminine leadership. We aren't talking about women leadership. So what's the difference between a feminist leader and a leader who's just like really good we hear this all the time okay yeah because feminist leadership is good it's really good we think it is and i think one of the key differences that we would say is that a feminist leadership approach really places the advancement and achievement of gender equality and the prioritization of the rights of women and people with marginalized genders at its heart and good leadership quote unquote good leadership wouldn't necessarily do that alongside that it kind of really works hard to tackle the systems and experiences of oppression and discrimination that result from the patriarchy as one system of oppression alongside other sources of oppression. But that focus on gender at its heart, I think, is what makes it unique. What would you say, Leila? Yeah, I'd agree. And I'd say I think that there's a bit of a risk that feminist leadership, the way it's being interpreted or rolled out or is diluting that that core heart of what we see as feminist leadership, which is this idea, all this knowledge that we have that it's women and people from marginalised gender identities who are the ones that are most impacted by patriarchy and other intersecting systems of oppression. We're in a time of polycrisis. Let's take the climate crisis. We know the impact of the climate crisis on women and girls, on on certain groups, those exist at the margins, they're disproportionately affected. Let's take racism. Let's look at phenomenon like misogynoir. Let's look at how women of colour experience racism in very differential and pounded ways. So I think that's what makes it different. And I think as those women from the global south who did such amazing work to conceptualise feminist leadership and to really give it more conceptual clarity would always say, look, it's a radical position. It's not just about making a few tiny changes here and there. It's about a fundamental transformation of power relations and society. And it's not something that can be done in very apolitical ways by, I don't know, moving a little bit of money here. And I'd call it shuffling deck chairs on the Titanic. Feminist leadership, <laughs> right? So I think for us, and it's up to everyone, I'm not here to define what it means to everyone. But for us, keeping that radical core in our heart is something that is very important. Not always easy to do, but it's really important to remember that. I think that's a really important lesson for us and holding on to that in the times when we've had clients who will say, when we say, oh, so what did you like about our proposal? And they'll say, oh, feminist, anti-racist. Yeah. Tell us more. (laughs) (laughs) What did you, what does that mean to you? And I think when we're talking about the ways in which we want to challenge people and challenge thinking, and we want to really center very specific voices and pieces of work, I think it sounds really good to people. But I do think that there is a how radical and different and transformative that is, is a bit scary. And I understand why it's scary, because it's looking to unseat power or to shift power in different places. So I guess I'm just curious, are we in the ripe moment? Are we in this moment where we've somehow shifted a little bit our social consciousness so that feminist leadership is now a more aspirational and less tokenistic thing? I'm curious if now we're moving to more authentic ways of thinking about feminist leadership, feminist organizations, co-liberation, because 
we because we're like lifting ourselves into this space by accident or do you think it's like an intentional thing i don't know does that make sense i think it varies like it looks so different in different organizations and i'd love to say yes is about us moving into more authentic ways of thinking but you i think you've also hit the nail on the head that there's lots of tokenistic efforts towards applying this in practice which we see in I know you must see in your work as well it's really easy to say yeah we're a feminist organization or not even we're a feminist organization look at our feminist principles don't they look pretty on the wall but actually putting them into practice and enabling your organization's members whoever they might be to really have the space to interrogate themselves around what those principles mean for them is a huge piece of work it's not just going to happen overnight and I think what we see quite a lot of is organizations thinking that yeah there's some easy fixes here there's some quick wins and actually the work of feminist leadership is not quick or easy and that is a really difficult pill to swallow particularly for organizations that are on the edge of crisis or doing work that requires a sense of urgency being able to take a step back from that and really think about what this means for your organisation and its values is often seen as a trade that you're not willing to make or it's at the expense of something else. And we've seen that over the last few years, particularly where organisations invest in, particularly around gender, it comes at the expense of another area of work and that kind of focus on intersectionality is, is completely lost. So I think that's a risk. And it's for those of us who are like in this as a long-term project, I don't know what the answer to that is because I think, yeah, there is a risk that... As Leila referred to earlier, there's a kind of watering down of what it means in practice. And that then becomes quite confusing for those people that are coming to it as something that's perhaps a bit newer to really understand what the work is. And maybe also just to say, and I want to shout out here, because I feel like implicitly we're talking about a certain type of organisation, but to remind us that there are feminist organisations across the world doing it. They are not tokenizing it. They are not performing feminism. They're just getting on with it. They're doing the work. Feminist movements around the world, feminist activists showing us that it can be done. So while, yes, we do some of these international organizations, I think everything that you're mentioning, yes, is there. But a reminder that actually these worlds exist. Yeah. Feminism in practice exists. People are doing it. They are getting on with it. There are lessons we can learn. And we, I think it's really important to remember that because otherwise it can be a little bit disillusioning or we can end up a little bit cynical and we have to sustain ourselves really for the long haul because as Natalie said it's not easy work it's not about quick technical fixes so we need to cultivate that hope and where I find that hope is by looking elsewhere looking outside the sector looking for example looking at what's the work that's being done outside of international frameworks go back to COVID look at all the great mutual aid organizing that went on and the leadership that was involved in that sourcing hope from that what can we learn from that what can we take from that there are people who are doing it and getting on with it so it's a balance between critiquing what's going on but also leaning into where it's actually being done and reminding ourselves that it's possible really i am not well known for being able to elegantly balance hope and pessimism between us <laughs> maybe i'm the hope and you're the pessimism <laughs> have a good balance between us i think both touched on something that transitions us very nicely to designing a feminist organization. Now, when Lauren put this on the table, I thought when you're designing a feminist organization, does it not 
depend on so many variables that you can't actually create a single model. So that's just one kind of debate between us. But you've touched on organizations that are already doing this and the types of values that they may possess as a kind of guiding framework. So if we were to build something from scratch, clean slate, build an organization together, can you talk a little bit about what some of those values might be? Very happy to draw on some examples of organizations that already exist that are doing, as you say, doing the work? I really appreciate this question about values because from the organisations that I take inspiration from, what I've learned from them is it's really, it comes down to values because values are what we can use to keep those kind of flames of feminist activism alive in our organisations. There are so many things that can extinguish that radical feminist core as we try to build feminist organisations. And that can be anything from the minute you start to accept funding from donors, that comes with conditionalities, the minute you start pushing up against intractable power structures or the risk of being co-opted by power structures. So all of those things can extinguish our feminist flames. And I think leaning into values is one channel that can help us to prevent this from happening. And I guess another thing I'd say about values, the difference between a kind of a values-led organisation and one that isn't, is that they have to be used and drawn upon to inform decision-making. They have to play a meaningful role in decision-making. But actually, when I think back to my experience in the senior leadership teams I've been a part of... I always had to fight the decision-making process to incorporate for values to be weighted adequately in decision-making processes. It was always about what's strategic, what's practical. And of course, those things are really important, but it was almost like the values, the organisational values were just not part of that decision-making process. So I think that's the difference, right? between kind of a values-led organisation or one of the differences and organisations that aren't. And maybe I'll just mention one value before moving to Natalie. I'd say the first value I think that needs to be there is something around the acknowledgement that the change that we want to bring externally has to start with ourselves. So it goes back to this this point about the importance of self-reflection or in feminist terms, we call it self-reflexivity. The importance that the work starts with us and with our own individual transformation, not just for us as individual staff members, for the organisation as a collective. So are we holding ourselves accountable and really asking ourselves, look, am I perpetuating internally what I say I'm trying to change externally? And in reality, many organisations find it very hard to do this because there's a lot of institutional defensiveness about actually looking at oneself in the mirror. There's a lot of silence. There's a lot of defensive innocence, institutional innocence. And there's many reasons for this. Of course, I understand understand why this might be. Our governance structures, our accountability structures, they penalise that kind of real courageous self-reflection. They penalise truth-telling, essentially. But I think without that core value of we have to do the work internally and we don't just externalise all the problems, I think it's very hard to move forward from a feminist perspective. So maybe I'll stop there. And I know Nat will have loads of really good ideas for values. I think the only thing I'd add, yes, Leila, but also it's, it's really difficult to be prescriptive because I think the role of feminist leadership is to support individuals and organisations to build what it is they're trying to build in a way that makes sense to their context. And yes, there are some kind of broad brush values and principles that we would talk about, but I think it's really important not to adopt something because it looks like it's a checklist of things that your organisation should be adopting. They need to really mean something to you and they need to 
be useful to you. They don't just need to replicate something that, that looks good. They need to be something that you can draw upon when times get really tough. When you're in organisational crisis, you want to be able to lean on them to make those difficult decisions, like Layla says, or be able to support your staff in the right way or to change your programming for the benefit of the people that you support. And maybe the only more sort of specific value that I would draw on is something around care, particularly for those organisations working in social justice work where a lot of the external work is about care, essentially, of other people and communities. We see so often the lack of care within organisations for staff and people connected to the inside. And so feminist leadership in, in practice and living its values, I think, should really look at what care means to how an organisation operates. So that's one of the things that that sticks out to me is really leading by values. I would say the problem for me in our work is that I feel incapacitated by guilt when we're not being led by our values. And I don't know what to do in that space because I start to think about we can work with a particular organization and we can push really hard and let's do this. But at the end of the day, I've got a mortgage to pay. So I really struggled. That overpowers me when we're working with organizations where I want to be leading as a radical feminist, but I also want to temper all the uh, personalities that are involved in the space because at the end of the day, I still would like to make money and eat. So these are these things that I like struggle with is that internal piece of we're not doing enough, we're not being led by our values in a way that's authentic and meaningful and is actually working towards the things that we think are important and the reason why we started the podcast and the consultancy, but also that tension of I'm a realist, I know what space I operate in. And sometimes that's really terrible. But I also recognize the fact that's a space that affords me the things that I like and need to live. And Yeah, the, the challenge is real in the conversation between us a lot about being driven by these values and coming up against organizations who don't meet us where we are and how much influence we have on that space too. We want to carry our values. We want to champion them. And I really liked what you said about values being useful. I've never worked for an organization who said, you know what, these values are your ally. Use them. Use them as a space to take your activism further. No one's ever framed them in that way before. And I think what we are trying to do is take those values and put them at the forefront of how we work and yeah as Tia said that's really hard um, but I think everyone I think it's good it's good that you're questioning this I think Natalie and I question this a lot who do we work with where are our red lines having a discussion about that in advance before you're actually met with a crisis what are we looking for from our clients what level of values alignment is realistic and what isn't and a reminder that look can't fight every battle and not all battles are worthy of your emotional and physical energy, actually. Be and strategic with where you fight. Look, we don't live in a pure feminist, anti-racist utopia. We're unable to 100% lean into our values all the time. But I think just being really mindful, thinking in advance about red lines and what are the hills you want to die on? What are the hills you want to walk past? Why is that? And not striving for perfection or purity in any of this, because that's where... The trouble lies, I think. Oh, you're killing me right now because I want to die on every hill. <laughs> this is the thing about feminist leadership. A big part of what we're dismantling is the binaries. It's not a very caring way of thinking, if nothing else. We have to be able to kind of embrace the complexity and nuance. And it's hard and it's uncomfortable. There's comfort in a binary, isn't there? There's a lot of comfort there. And feminist leadership is asking us to go to the grey areas and lean into the discomfort that might come. But I don't know, Nat, what would you say? 
Yeah, no, I'd agree. And I think it's useful maybe to remind ourselves, so when we look back on the history of feminist struggle, that the road towards it is littered with tensions, conflicts, trade-offs, because there hasn't been and won't be a perfect journey towards the outcome that we're all trying to get to. We talk at Lament and Perfection, we talk about perfection or the resistance towards perfection being a political act in itself, because perfection is something that particularly women should strive towards is a demand that's a, an oppressive patriarchal one really and so this thing that I think is and can be part of our feminist journeys too. I think that's a conflict that Lauren and I routinely have is that as a high achiever chronic perfectionist we're always having these conversations where I get very hung up on grammar or spelling for example. And this pursuit of perfection, I feel very much is grounded in the spaces around me. And that as a queer woman of color, I don't actually feel like I have very much space to not be perfect. So while I can intellectualize and understand why it's important as an action to not seek to be perfect and to be mindful of burnout and all of the things. I can't separate that from how other people experience me. So I can say, I'm not going to be perfect. I'm just going to leave all my grammatical errors in there. But that's interacting in a space with other people. In a way, that's gaslighting yourself because actually... If you're not perfect, the sanctions for you not being perfect are going to be very different to if, for example, Lauren is imperfect or Natalie's imperfect, right? And I, yeah, I don't think we can pretend, we, we can't pretend that. And I don't know, I how I have started with this perfectionism thing is asking myself, okay, if that isn't the space where I can p- practice non-perfectionism or whatever the opposite of perfectionism is, then where are there other spaces where I can start to do this? that feels safer because actually there isn't safety in you doing let's be honest there isn't safety you will get critiqued there will be assumptions made about your credibility depending on the client you're working for this is what happens there's no point pretending that doesn't happen right so again it's not always safe for all of us to challenge in the same ways and I think that's where that intersectional lens comes in really the way I practice feminist leadership is going to look differently to the way Natalie does to the way Lauren does and so on and there's no use pretending otherwise I don't think Hi everyone, it's Lauren here. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. There's so much to get into on feminist leadership that we've decided to split this into two episodes. So stay tuned for part two next week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Journey to Transformation. Leave us a five-star rating and a written review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Journey to Transformation is written and edited by us, Tia Rogers and Lauren Burrows. Our music comes from Praz Canal.